The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let me just pray for us this morning. Father, we come before you once again, restless people who will not find rest until we rest in you. We ask, Lord, that you would bring rest to us as we approach your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in living and breathing ways, that you would make things come alive for us that we could not see on our own. And Father, we pray that we would leave this place changed people as a result of your word. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. So imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss because your life depended on it. The patron saint of our denomination, Tim Keller, who pastors Redeemer Church in New York City, has a bride named Kathy who loves him very well. She wrote these words to him in the midst of a dark season in their life. The dust from the Twin Towers collapse had not completely been settled. His wife had been agonizing over debilitating Crohn's disease, and Tim had just received a diagnosis of thyroid cancer. She saw it necessary to wake up her pastor husband to the reality that they had begun to neglect and even ignore the regular medicine that they both needed desperately, prayer. She continued saying, Tim, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of everything that we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. Do we believe that prayer is an integral part of our survival as a Christian and as a church? Or do we believe that prayer is like an elective night class that we can avoid taking and instead replace it with the art of skimming a Facebook post or introduction to binge watching? If we're honest, many of us choose the latter. We slip into this mindset that believes prayer has little purpose, even less power, and serves really, it's just as window dressing to more important matters of faith in the gospel. Some of us just don't understand prayer. Why talk to a God who knows what you're going to say? We don't see the effectiveness of prayer. Why pray when nothing I seem to be praying about seems to change? We don't know why we end every prayer in Jesus' name. We may think it just makes the prayer sound a little more sincere or severe, and that's about it. 
But then disaster strikes. And what do you hear people saying? I'll be praying for you. You're in my thoughts and prayers. Suddenly, prayer has meaning, or at least we think it has meaning. Do we believe, like Kathy Keller, that we would be lost without prayer? Do we believe that prayer is an integral part of our story of redemption? Do we believe that without prayer, we would not survive? Today, as we continue our series in the book of Acts, in which the author Luke describes for us the story of the church and our mission as a church, we've seen how the gospel, the message of Jesus, is breaking out beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And Pastor Dan has been describing over the past few weeks how this gospel message is now involving Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, rich and poor, nationals and foreigners. And and no one has a name to describe these Jesus followers because never before has the watching world seen such diversity amongst a gathering of people. They don't know what to call them because they're a mishmash. So these followers are given the new name, Christians. And not only are these Christians independent Jesus followers, Luke begins in the book of Acts to use the Greek term ecclesia, or church, to describe the joining together of these Christians as a people, as an assembly, as members of a body larger than any one individual. They're starting to share what they have with each other. They're meeting together regularly. They're experiencing incredible growth in numbers and in depth, and they're praying together, but not without significant opposition. I just wanted to point your attention to the graphic uh, for this series. And I was part of designing it, so that's why, you know, I just want to, it maybe doesn't make sense to you, but I want to explain what it's supposed to mean. All right, so if you look at the colored arrows, that's the church. That's a church moving in a direction together. Many colors, many members, many varieties, many positions But did you notice what faces them up in the corner? Opposition, roadblocks, resistance. And Luke is a master storyteller. I love Luke. Because in order for any story to be any good, what do you need? You need a really good storyline. And what makes for a good storyline? Donald Miller, along with many authors before him, says the best storylines are those that have a character at the beginning. If you want to pull that up, Wendy, a character. And that character has a problem. And then the character meets a guide who gives them a solution and calls them to action, which results in either powerful blessing, a comedy, or painful curse, a tragedy. You take any romantic comedy, any epic story, anything, it follows this pattern. And this is, in essence, the gospel story of any Jesus follower. We, the character, each one of us, were made by God to reflect his glory and experience the sweetness of fellowship with him. But we encountered a problem. 
we declared our independence from our maker, which resulted in separation from God, the mess of sin and eternal death. But we met a guide, Jesus, who gave us a solution that he would die instead of us and asks that we trust in his perfection to cover us. Then our call to action is we are asked to pray to him, confessing our mess and asking him to save us instead of us having to save ourselves. And the powerful resolution comes when we become children of God and share with Jesus in his life eternal. This is the continual narrative flow of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 12, Luke is wanting us to see that the gospel storyline, which brings salvation to all who believe it to be true, it's also the pattern that should shape our prayer life. We see in this chapter the gospel pattern of prayer for the church. And it's in three acts, basically. The first act of Acts chapter 12, we're going to see problem prayer. The second act, we're going to see solution praise. And the third act, we're going to see Jesus power. Let's start with the first act, problem prayer. Read with me Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Anyone who knows anything about the Gospels, whether Christian or not a Christian, can hear this leader's name spoken and know, oh, we got trouble. That's trouble with a T that rhymes with he that stands for Herod. And in this case, we have the fourth wave of Herod trouble. Herod Agrippa. His grandfather, Herod the Great, murdered scores of baby boys because the promise of a coming king was a threat to his position. His uncle, Herod Philip, was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. And his other uncle, Herod Antipas, made a fool of Jesus in his trial and gave no protection to this man who wouldn't perform for him. And here... Herod Agrippa. To the Jewish audience, this Herod wasn't as much of a problem. In fact, he was like the Sally Field of Herods. They liked him. They really, really liked him. And trying to get on their side to maintain his rule, Herod did his best to keep not only the Jewish law, but also keep the Jewish people happy. And what was not making them happy or him happy were these problem Christians. So he started laying hands on these problem Christians. Not to ordain them, not to heal them, but to kill them. 
to intimidate them by executing violence on the church's chief men, the apostles, those who had known Jesus intimately, and those who had also claimed to witness Jesus alive and well after his crucifixion. Herod beheads one of Jesus' three best friends, James, the son of thunder. And after seeing how delighted the Jews were at Herod's effective leadership, Herod's now going to take out Jewish enemy number two, Peter. But out of respect for the Passover, which doesn't allow for executions during that time, he decides to wait until it's finished. And the authorities, they had Peter in custody before, if you remember, in Acts 5. And miraculously, Peter escaped. So Herod does everything to make certain this will not happen again. Sixteen guards will be responsible for him, four at a time. Peter will be chained, not to just one guard, but two guards. And one guard will be at the cell door, and another one will be at the prison entrance. Secure. No one's touching him. The only problem to Herod's airtight plan is found in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church was dedicating itself to problem prayers. The word in verse 5 in the ESV is earnest. What that basically means is you would stop at nothing. You just keep going. You don't give up constant prayer. There's a stretching that's implied here. That it hurts, that it costs, that it aches, that it agonizes to pray in this way. And what keeps this problem prayer constant in the church It's impossible situations when nothing in your own power is going to change anything, when there's no other option besides the Lord, when all hope is lost. They can't get to Peter. He's unreachable. To get to him means Herod's going to kill you. And Peter's chains, they're not going to be broken. And if they could, only the Lord's going to be able to do that. So they bring in these problem prayers to the Lord. Aching, agonizing for Peter. Think about the original Passover. Do you remember what the slaves in Egypt did when they faced impossible Pharaoh? Exodus 2:23 says, "The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help." Problem prayer. So what do problem prayers sound like? Well, we can just look to the Psalms, the hymn book of the church, for examples. They're not hard to find, honestly, and they're usually at the beginning of the psalmist's prayers. Some examples include these. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Or this. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. For this, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Or in one of the most beautiful psalms, 
of problem prayer. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? What do you notice to be some of the themes of these problem prayers? We're outnumbered. We're in a lot of pain. We're looking for someone to listen to us. We're feeling as if God is far away from us. We're even maybe hearing silence on the other end of the prayer line. And this is why we're not great at problem prayers. We are so impatient and we give up far too easily because we sometimes just don't hear from God right away. We want our prayers to change the situation and change it now instead of changing us. We want to see results and we want to see them now. We're good at devoting 20 hours to the latest Netflix series, but devote 20 hours to prayer and you'd be considered a freak. What if problem prayers, church, were opportunities to change not our circumstances, but rather change us into deeper trusters in the Lord, fuller investors in the Lord, desperate dependence on the Lord. I think of a scene in one of my favorite films. It's called Shadowlands. It's about C.S. Lewis. I called him Jack. And Jack's wife's cancer goes into remission. And she's given more time to live, maybe a year, maybe two. And all of his friends are gathered around Jack. And one of Jack's friends reaches out to him to encourage him that his prayers have worked. And Jack confronts his friend about his mistaken understanding of problem prayers. His friend says, Your other friends can scoff, Jack, but I know how hard you've been praying. And now God is answering your prayers. And Jack responds, It's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because a need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. As an application, I thought today we'd end each main point with a prayer. This time, I think God gives us permission to pray a problem prayer together. Would you join me? Father, some of us are here today asking, where are you? You're far off and distant. We can't hear you. We're wrestling to find a solution, a comfort, a help, or for you to do something, and it's like you're ignoring us. There are people in our lives whose bodies or souls are wasting away right now, and you're not appearing to heal them. There are parts of our own hearts which feel like they're dying inside, and when we call to you, it's like we're talking to a wall. Why do you stand so far away? Why do these troubles not seem to be going away? Please, Father, be near. 
Hear us from heaven. Come and help us. We beg you. Come. We plead with you. Answer. We need you. Respond. And all God's people said, Amen. Some of us, we did not like that prayer. Because that prayer might have felt disrespectful or demanding. But God calls us to bring our problem prayers before him because guess what? Every prayer God's children pray, he answers. I've quoted this before, but it does bear repeating from our patron saint, Tim Keller, and it's this. God always answers the prayers of his people, always. And God will either answer our prayers with what we ask or what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knows. And this leads us to act two. Solution praise. Read with me. Acts chapter 12, verses 6 to 17. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door at the gateway of, of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. If you had to diagnose the problem with the early church's understanding of prayer that's found in this passage, what would you say the problem is? They didn't believe there was a real solution. So here's the problem. Herod, the most powerful man that they know, had Peter on death row. Solution, enter a power greater than man, the power of the Lord who sets prisoners free. But Peter was chained to two guards and surrounded by two others in a locked fortress. Solution, 
The maker of steel becomes the breaker of steel. And the maker of the guards becomes the guardian of the prisoner. Problem. There's no way into the city. The gates are locked. Solution. Every city is mine, declares the Lord. And just as stones can be rolled away to reveal a resurrected man, so too can gates open on their own accord to reveal a dead man walking and knocking at the door of Mary's house. The place where the Jerusalem church gathered and was at that very moment doing what? Praying. Servant girl comes to the door. And just at the sound of Peter's voice, she just hears his voice, she's confronted with her own unbelief. I, I love the humorous scene in verse 14. When Rhoda comes to the door, hears Peter's voice, and completely forgets to answer it because she's so overjoyed by the impossible becoming possible. Peter's just standing there, like, confused. Where, where'd they go? Where'd they go? It's like a scene from a romantic comedy, like starring an expressive Greek or Italian family. Rhoda breaks up the somber prayer meeting, showing, Ah! Peter's here! Peter's here! And they say, like Elaine from Seinfeld, Get out! No, no, no way. He's alive. He's here. He's here. And they say, no way. She says, way. And they say, no way. And she says, way. And she says, you're crazy. No, I'm not crazy. God's honest truth. He's out there. And then dead silence comes to the family as they hear the knock at the door. And the craziness repeats again. It took Peter having to raise his hand for a second to calm them all down. And there he encourages them, tell James this is not the James that's just been killed, but James, Jesus' brother, who once disbelieved in Jesus, but is now head of the Jerusalem church. Tell James and the rest of the church this. God made the impossible possible. In essence, Peter is encouraging the church to remember that nothing is impossible with the Lord and to praise him for the work that he's done. That in the midst of impossible situations, that the problem prayers of the church have a God who responds with solutions. It's fuel to keep going. It's encouragement for the soul. For those of us who live in the church almost 2,000 years later, how are we doing at being Rhoda? How are we doing with sharing with others the impossible things that God has made possible are we telling our brothers and sisters here about those who were dead in their sin coming to new life in Christ? Are we sharing with friends how God took an in-the-gutter dead marriage and breathed new life back into it? Are we asking others to join us like the prayer meeting at Mary's house to pray for impossible situations in order that we might praise the Lord for bringing about possible transformation and gospel change. A very, very minor but very personal illustration for me that I wanted to share with you real briefly. As many of you know, Bliss and I took a trip to Atlanta a few weeks back for an assessment to determine whether the Lord might be leading us to do what I believed to be an impossible task, which is plant a church. And for several weeks leading up to the trip, I'd been restless at night, praying problem 
prayers before the Lord. Asking him really hard questions. Bringing him my deepest insecurities and arguments about why this is a really bad idea. And funny thing about it is that I have record of some of those nights through an app that I call, or I don't call it, they call it, that's called Sleep Cycle. It traces the quality or lack of quality to your sleep. And here's an example of what my sleep and problem prayers looked like prior to and during much of our time in Atlanta. See the time? Up. Oh, I was up at 11.30. I was up at 1. I was up at 2.30. Up at 3.45. Up at 5. Up again. There it is. Finally, I had had enough. I was getting so tired of being tired. I was so tired of playing God in my head that in the middle of our week in Atlanta, I pleaded with the Lord saying, please, Father, I want to trust you fully and I want to sleep through the night. It doesn't seem like it's going to be possible anymore. Please help me. I awoke the next morning to this. One in the morning might be bladder related, just so you know. Okay. And maybe, a little like Rhoda and the rest of the early church, I jumped out of bed, refreshed and refueled, praising God for bringing a solution to my impossible situation. Let's encourage one another this week about the work the Lord is actively doing in bringing dead things back to life, making impossible things possible. And let's praise God in prayer for the solutions that he brings. The person who's struggling, who's not yet seen a solution to their problem prayer, they need encouragement that God is still alive and active when it feels like he's not. To the person who's doubting that God even cares, they need to hear about how God is providing. We need to hear ourselves who live in a doubting, God-forgetting, evolution-loving world say, there is a God and he's alive. I'm going to pray again. A solution praise. Thank you, Father. For all of the impossible situations that you have allowed us to see your hand make possible. We want to quiet our hearts for a moment to allow you to remind us, like Peter standing at the door, the solutions to impossible situations you have worked on our behalf. For the chains and the prisons you have released us from, we praise you, Father. For the locked gates that you have opened before us, we praise you, Father. For the daily bread that you have provided when we doubted you could provide, we praise you, Father. And all God's people said, amen. One final act, and I'll try to be briefer here, is act three. Jesus' power And it's found in Acts 12, 
18 to 24. Read with me. Now when the day came, the day to execute Peter, or take him out, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Chad, what do these verses have anything to do with Jesus, let alone prayer? You might be asking that. Well, it took me some prayer and investigation, but here's what I believe Luke is wanting us to see. The people of Tyre and Sidon are looking for something. They're looking for peace, and Herod's not happy with them. First, he's lost Peter, and he's lost face with the Jewish people. So he moves away from them and goes to Caesarea. Second, he's at odds with the people of Sidon and Tyre. We don't know exactly why, but what we do know is that Herod has the power to cut off these two cities' food supply and trade supply. And like Pastor Dan mentioned, there is an incredible severe famine going on, a shortage of food for these people. And they're looking for peace so they can eat, so they can survive And they find a way to plead with Herod, the king, to forgive them. To be okay with them once again so they can have food to eat, so they can live. And Herod agrees to be their peace, to be their king once again, to be their hope, to be their savior. And during an appointed holiday, the king gives them audience, which is a sign of peace with the people. We actually have another historical account of what happened here in addition to what you find in the book of Acts. And it's written by an ancient, reliable historian who's not a Christian named Josephus. Not only does hearing this separate account strengthen my trust in God's infallible word, it strengthens my trust in God's powerful work. I trust that you can follow some of the ancient language that's here, but this is coming from a historian, not a writer of Scripture. And this is what he writes. On the second day of the spectacles, which was this festival, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and came into the theater early in the morning. There, the silver of his garment became illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner, and was so impressive as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. Presently, his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, it's interesting, that he was a god. 
And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth only as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. A severe pain arose in his belly, striking with a most violent intensity. He therefore looked upon his friends and said this, I, whom you call a God, and commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus rejects the lying words you just now have said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. Moments later, Herod dropped to the ground in fierce pain. And he officially died five days later. Imagine being a citizen of Tyre and Sidon and watching your hope for peace and survival collapse. We can never, ever find peace in a man unless that man is also God. Herod shows us the futility of attempting to trust in a world power unless that power has control of the world. As Herod drops dead and physical famine spreads, verse 14 encourages us and tells us that the word of God, Jesus himself, like food for hungry souls, increases and multiplies through the land. The reason we pray in Jesus' power, the reason we pray in Jesus' name, is because we, like the people of Tyre and Sidon, know that unless we have peace with the king, we are going to starve and die and be devoured by eternal worms. Jesus is our only source of true peace and life-giving food, the only peace giver who took our separation from God on himself in his problem prayer on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, who provide a solution, prays as Mary Magdalene runs to an upper room to tell the disciples, he's alive, he's alive. We pray with Jesus' powers because we see how impossible it would be to make a holy God pleased with us, sinful human beings, unless we know his son, Jesus. The Father knows the Son. If we know the Son, the Father knows us. Jesus' death is our problem prayer answered. His resurrection is our solution praise sung. Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is our eternity and salvation power. Let's pray in Jesus' name and watch the word of God in Jacob's well and in the church throughout the world multiply and increase. Would you please stand with me to pray?
Father, we stand to pray clothed in the perfection of your Son and King, Jesus, who radiates with incredible glory. When we pray in Jesus' name, Father, you clothe us with his perfection and say of us what you say to him, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. Father, we stand because your son fell, took the cancerous worms of our sin and was devoured in death for our sake. Your son took on death and was victorious. You opened the gates of heaven that we could not open ourselves through Jesus. And you brought all of us, dead people, walking. We were trapped in prison, but you brought us out by the hand of your son. Where would we be without Jesus and his power over sin and death? Thank you for giving him to us. Thank you that we became his problem. And that he alone is our solution. May the word of Christ continue to multiply and increase in our lives and in this church. And we pray this in every prayer. In the powerful and glorious name of Jesus and all God's people shouted, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat.